0: This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. I am once again honored to be representing my friends at New Society Publishers, the book publishers that were a big inspiration to me even before I started working with ecologies and natural buildings and way before podcasting. Their titles like The Natural Plaster Book, and timber framing for the rest of us really made me believe that I could build my own home, which I eventually did. And later volumes like Ecopreneuring, Unlearn Rewild, and Building Community have offered tons of inspiration and even helped to shape my worldview. Whether you're looking for practical tips on growing and preserving food, exploring complex challenges in your own life, or sometimes just searching for hope and inspiration in a crazy world where you don't feel like you fit in, you'll find exactly what you're looking for and more at NewSociety.com. Welcome back, everybody. Now, three weeks ago, I published the episode with Thomas Vigors on circular mushroom production here in Catalonia. And in that episode, I gave a sneak peek at the second interview that I did with Sven Kalin. Well, today the wait is over and we're going to dive into the details of Sven's work on reforestation and agroforestry in some of the most degraded and endangered areas of Europe from the Iberian Peninsula, which includes Spain and Portugal, and the entire Mediterranean basin, which includes many of the most popular vacation destinations on the continent, but also the most rapidly desertifying areas. Now, as the effects of climate change increase and become more severe, we collectively need to rethink how we respond to the geographical zones at the front lines. Luckily, this is Sven's specialty and his life's work. And so I'll let Sven introduce himself before we dive into the actionable steps to regenerate these high risk zones.
1: My name is Sven Kallen. I'm Dutch from origin. I've been living in several countries, but uh, most of the time actually in Spain. I've been living more than 20 years in Barcelona and uh, my journey has been particularly through the international promotion of mainly Dutch and Northern European technologies into Latin America and Spain. And about 12 years ago, I made a decision to go only, to to focus only on sustainability from then on. I I was feeling sort of um, not very motivated to just promote any type of product or any type of service. And that sustainability is what really started to uh, give more purpose to what we were doing and uh, more, much more satisfying job, if you like. You know? So really trying to um, create working business models, but from a healthy point of view from the, for all kind of stakeholders involved and for the planet, of course. And, uh, and that's what we've been doing in the last 12 years.
0: Now, that seems like a fairly logical progression into tree planting and working with farms. But can you tell me from the leap of technology into ecology and what made you focus on working with landscape
1: specifically? I traveled a lot by train originally to, uh, from Barcelona to Madrid. And for the people that do not know that, but in between is an area called around Zaragoza which is called Los Monegros which is basically Europe's biggest desert. And it's always struck me that, um, you know, you think about deserts, you think about, obviously, the Sahel, uh, Northern Africa, you think about China, you think about some maybe Southern Arizona or those kind of areas, or Mexico. Uh, But we have it right at our doorstep. And so every time I was on that train thinking and looking outside and thinking, wow, how is it possible that not a single tree is growing here? You see some green pockets there from time to time, which is basically corn being produced with irrigated water from the Ebro River. And I found that very strange. So I started researching. Um, I've also had a passion for trees. So I was naturally drawn to solutions to technologies, in fact, that could help to reestablish those ecosystems. And uh, I came across an invention from a Dutch guy, uh, which was based around the idea of creating a very local sort of um, unit that could hold water that would... uh, give that water or sort of seep the water to the to the roots systems in order to help that new sapling to survive the first summer basically which is the always the most difficult time for for a tree to get you know get established to get its root system in, in place and find its way around and that was basically what triggered me into um, reforestation projects and trying to see if we could turn this desert around into a more greener and productive area. And that's basically, um, yeah, I mean, trying to sell that story to a lot of stakeholders, we got a lot of uh, positive reactions, curiosity and saying, well, uh, that all sounds great, but probably it will not work in my type of soil, in my type of climate conditions, with my type of trees. And so we were basically forced to look for external funding in order to demonstrate that this particular device would actually work in any circumstances in any any dry land operation and so then we turned to european funding Uh, we found a niche in the what's called the life program which is the european sort of framework uh, agreement or framework program where people can apply for all kind of different different strands but let's say uh, to promote environmental activities and to demonstrate new New approaches, new methodologies, in order to uh, enhance nature, or to enhance, or to solve a particular waste problem, or a emission problem, or it doesn't matter. But um, so that's that's what we turned to, and that uh, turned out to be a success, and also, it gave us a new direction as a business.
0: So tell me where you're at with the development of this product. I assume you're talking about the cocoons, the the little basins that help trees to get established in difficult terrain over over the span of their first year primarily, right?
1: Right. So uh, initially, this was made out of plastic, hard plastic. And uh, we saw from the beginning that it, I mean, from a functional point of view, it worked very well. But it was very clear that people love to plant trees and to put that device around it, but they didn't like to come back. People are not very geared towards maintenance and towards coming back and removing things and cleaning that up. And so at some point we started seeing broken plastic, um, lids flying off because of strong winds and, you know, really littering the landscape. So that was not a, a good solution. So eventually it moved towards a cardboard version um, protected with a natural wax layer in order to for the, for the cardboard to be resistant enough to hold the water. And uh, that has basically... Uh, Went through a couple of cycles of improvement, also thanks to European programs, among others, the FTI Cocoon Project, um, sponsored by the um, Horizon 2020 uh, program, in order to increase its durability. You can just imagine um, animals walking past, or even humans accidentally stepping on a cardboard lid. Of course, that breaks very easily, or a lot of rain pounding on top of it. It really weakens very rapidly any cardboard structure. So um, the company involved, which is called Landlife Company, that holds the design of the cocoon, uh, together with our help, but uh, we we really helped them implement that that system in Spain, Um, took a lot of improvements in order to get to the actual version that it is right now.
0: So I'll definitely put a link on the show notes for this episode so people can see what the cocoon looks like, but can you describe it for our listeners? How is it shaped and and why is that shape selected for the function that it serves?
1: So people compare it to basically to a donut, if you like. So it's a 50 centimeter diameter, uh, shaped 25 centimeters high. And uh, what you need is you have to make a bigger hole, planting hole, than you normally would do with a normal tree. In the middle of course goes the tree, the the sapling itself. And then around it, you place that donut, and you fill it with about 20-25 litres of water and you're sure it's well stabilized. You close the lid, you put a protector on top if you have one available and you basically try to cover it around it with soil so that the lid doesn't fly off and, and that's it and you're done.
0: And this allows the water to very slowly seep into directly the roots of this tree that's trying to get established?
1: Yes, so the, the, the difference between, let's say, conventional irrigation, even if it would be drip irrigation, is that you drip the water at the root, at, at the top, at the soil level of the of, of where the tree is, is, is placed, right? Which um, to a lot of theories makes the tree, let's say, sort of lazy, the a very comfortable position because it doesn't have to work uh, its root system. On the other hand, if you, put the water at a lower level. So you basically, what you're trying to do is to restore the, the, the water column. The, uh, so the, you create sort of a moisty capillary column below the tree. You give these roots the opportunity to slowly find their way down and, uh, and give them incentive to grow deep. And that is what the cocoon does very well. And you see actually, if you dig out a tree after a few years, you see an incredible root development below that. So, uh, I mean, the cocoon is only a temporary help. You know, after two months, three months, typically the lid starts to crumble, and then people come to me and say, "Oh, it's broken," but it's actually the purpose of it. It has to, it has to de- start degrading at some point. What will remain inside that planting hole is the, um, is the, um, let's say the lid and the it compacts the. The, the the area around it so it, it still remains an important area to capture rainwater for the next in the next rainy season and so that that hole will be replenished and that water column will stay intact because on the other hand your the bottom of the cocoon obviously covers the soil. So that basically helps to prevent evaporation of the of the moist below it. So you be really creating their capillary column in which the, the plant can thrive.
0: Now I've seen a couple of different iterations of products like this. Like you mentioned, the first ones were plastic. They've since evolved into this biodegradable cardboard. Does it have any other features? I know some are like inoculated with mycelium spores to help the root systems. Are there any other features about this besides the structure itself?
1: Uh, not for the moment at uh, the project called Cocoon. Um, what we try to do is is to innovate around the, the tree itself. So. Um, we, on the one hand, we try to plant uh, with different types of soil amendments. You think we can think about biochar, um, which is, has a very interesting uh, sort of behavior, helping new trees to get established and to act as a sponge also for for water, in, in, which is particularly important in very dry conditions. Uh, we can add mycorrhizae either uh, at the growth stadium uh, in in the, in the nurseries or uh, at mycorrhizae. Um, the moment that you plant, so below the root system, we also work with uh, all kind of other soil bacteria in order to basically help to, you know, to get soil life going again and to give these roots enough um, stimulus and help, you know, to get established because that's basically what it is about: try to get that root system going, and then the plant should uh, be able to survive by itself.
0: And so you've got tons of different planting projects going on all over the place. Can you tell me about? some of the different operations and what the objectives are? Is it always just reforestation, or is it also with an agricultural objective as well?
1: Well, we we are involved now as Volterra in a number of live projects. Um, Not all of them are focused on reforestation, but let's say the ones that that do, uh, they have a strong component of um, looking at ecosystem restoration. So we're really trying to take a holistic view and look at the land and see what can be worth doing there. So there are situations in which, for example, the land has been burned, which needs sort of a mixed forest approach uh, with bushes, with pioneering trees, with um, deciduous trees in order to to regenerate or to help the the, the acceleration of the regeneration. Uh, And then we also work with agroforestry. So a farmer wants to convert his land to become more resilient towards, you know, the effects of climate change. We have increasingly, increasing periods of droughts. We have ongoing erosion. We have lots of problems on the land. Sometimes even sterile lands that are, you know, completely wasted things to many years of, of, of uh, fertilizer or very heavy use of pesticides or of, of herbicides. And so to turn that land around, trees can play a very interesting role in that. And on the one hand, of course, improve your business model, uh, on the other hand, because it's not about just restoring the land, but also see if, uh, you know, your trees can help pay for that.
0: Now, one of the things that you and I first talked about when we actually had a Zoom call before we ever met was the analysis of some of the other tree planting initiatives that are pretty common, right? Maybe it's an organization like a business or a nonprofit, and... They'll say, okay, we're gonna plant X number of trees in this degraded area and they go in with some group of people and a bunch of purchased trees and they throw them all on the ground and and what happens after that? And you had quite a few insights as well as criticisms the way most tree planting initiatives are executed.
1: Traditionally in Spain, um, the, the contractors for reforestation projects were hired on the number of trees planted. So the, the only criterion was you had to show that, uh, let's say, you know with a, a typical density of 800 or 1,000 trees per hectare uh, times 25 hectares, let's say in this example, that you had placed 25,000 trees in the ground. Now, it didn't matter really if those trees would die off next year or what would happen to them. And I think that um, that has since improved. And also we're pushing for... Deals with long term maintenance, in which you really try to think about what you plant where. So you try to get to the, the, the right tree in the right place concept. Uh, forward thinking. Let's think 30 or 50 years ahead and look at the climate scenarios for particular regions. It's now very well defined what's going to happen, or most probably is going to happen in terms of precipitation, in terms of uh, your. Uh, amount of days in which the rain falls which is typically every year less or every cycle less and less days per year so you have you know um, the more importance of retaining water for as long as, as possible what about late frost which is now a particular phenomenon happening in, in a lot of places in Europe uh, particularly harming now for example in France the, the, whole, um, the wine wine uh, the wine industry for example but this is happening in many countries so
0: I've definitely heard we, about it here as well I mean I think it was earlier this year that a lot of the stone fruit harvest was already damaged from a late frost and
1: correct so yeah. you need you need to go towards uh, in terms of species selection to probably different criteria if you want to ensure that we have and this is i mean probably for fruit trees is a different thing because they have cycles of 15 years 14 years 16 years while if you're trying to really recover uh, a piece of damaged land into let's say for, more forest style approach you need to think 50, 70 or 80 years ahead or even more, even longer those cycles. Now um, So it's going to be very very important to look at soil type, future use, uh, climate scenarios on what is your selection of species and how, um, how can you maybe think ahead and look at species that are now thriving in areas that are under those conditions. To where your terrain is going maybe in 30 or 50 years and then we come to a very interesting and controversial theme which is called assisted migration of species i mean animals can travel uh, north because that typically that effect of the climate change is moving from south to north Um, but trees cannot and bushes cannot and i mean there's no time for these for these species to adapt themselves to the uh, to the ongoing rhythm actually so that's the, the, one of the themes of our most recent project is, is assisted migration and see how we can sort of experiment in a controlled way to ensure that what we plant now is still there in 50 years.
0: And let's talk about some of the reasons why these initiatives are necessary in the first place. What is causing the degradation of, especially the areas around the Mediterranean? I think this is mostly what we're talking about, but also the interior of Spain and, the precursors to getting us where we're at now.
1: Well, I'm, I'm not a... Uh,
0: I suppose it's different in a lot of different regions. <laughs> yeah. They each have their own land use histories, but in general...
1: Yeah, in general I would say that in the Mediterranean countries that have been suffering, I mean historically always, from very strong summers and uh, typical irregular periods of rain, I mean, the expression when it rains, it pours, that is very designed for Spain and certain Italy, for example, in Greece. And um, so that has always been here. But let's say that the intensity has been growing over the last 20 years, for sure. And on the other hand, there's a lot of investment being done in irrigation practices. So I think between 80 and 85% of the water used in Spain is for agriculture, for irrigation. But that only covers 10% of the surface. The rest is dryland farming. So imagine the pressure on aquifers has been tremendous, and so if, you, if the general level of aquifers drops in a the country, then of course the rest of the of the crops are going to have more difficulty in um, in in thriving, and therefore what you see is, and then you have this increasingly people drawing on wells uh, with uh, salinization problems, um, which then sort of gets a compounded effect, where you know. Okay, we're uh, we having a higher solution. We have a higher. We have a bigger problem of salinization. Let's throw more water on it. Yeah, that that's, those type of practices have been allowed for many many years. That's now changing and it's being rationalized and getting better. But there's a lot of damage done. And then you see if you go to Murcia or you go to uh, Castilla La Mancha, even now close to Madrid, and you see basically what we, we could call the, the frontier of climate change, basically cropping up with hundreds of meters or even kilometers, people say, every so many years, in which you basically see the whole country drying out. And, uh, and that's it, basically the compounding effect of what has been happening over the last 50 years, probably, together with the you know, global effects of climate change. So you have to arm yourself as a landowner. So what are we going to do? And I think the biggest answer uh, there is uh, shade, trying to create cover. So there's a lot of experience with cover crops uh, in, in, in regular agriculture, um, with direct seeding, You know, not plowing anymore in order to prevent oxidation of the soil, uh, but also a lot of trees make sense you know, from a, from a production point of view.
0: Let's walk through the, the assessment of a piece of land that you're perhaps going into for someone who is interested in planting trees. What are the main things or points of data or site analysis that you do to determine the strategy and the species you're going to select to try and plant in those areas?
1: So we basically work with a questionnaire uh, that we try to sort of get answered by the landowner. Um, It goes from former use to future use. So the desires of the landowner, what does he or she want? We look at, um, we always take some soil samples to see, you know, um, the the, the type of soil averages. You look at compactation, you look at slope, you look at uh, water availability. So you look at a number of factors. You look at uh, existing forests in the surroundings or species that are doing well or maybe are, are more vulnerable. And then that gives you a pretty good picture of what's there, what's the baseline situation. And then looking at future desires of the landowner um yeah you, you basically start to make a list of potential species that could do well under under the existing and, and forecasted situation and then of course you have to together sort of come to uh to conclusion of what's acceptable and what's um what's available in the nurseries that they get lots of you know sub questions around it but uh, that's basically the process
0: and when it comes to implementing a project let's say you you've written out this questionnaire you've got the answers that you need walk me through the implementation process for for example where do you source trees from and how do you bring together the the amount of people assuming this is going to be like a community event rather than a contract for for someone
1: yeah, i think it's the right moment now to mention uh, our star project that we call it uh, which is called life Terra, of which we're very proud Um, because we got a lot of requests from landowners in the last years that indeed would love to have their terrain reforested or have trees around it or in particular zones. And we also, on the other hand, get a lot of requests that started with friends and family, but that also moved to companies calling and saying, hey, you're doing something with trees. Can we come out and help to plant those? And so those are two very interesting phenomena. I mean, the landowner typically has a vision of where he or she wants to go, but might not have the money or the resources available to put those trees on the land. On the other hand, there's companies and and collectives, schools interested to get involved. And so we try to mix that into Life Terra. And that is a very ambitious reforestation project or tree planting project, I should say, because there's a difference between reforestation and afforestation. But let's say a tree planting project focused on allowing, facilitating the planting of 500 million trees in Europe in the next coming five years, One, So allowing each citizen, European citizen, to plant his or her own tree. And that's a very exciting project. We've started that last year. And that is actually about trying to help landowners to accelerate the greening of their land uh, with trees. And then all these elements of what we learned over the last few years is coming together. And we're not doing that alone. We're doing that with a number of partners in uh, in more than 16 partners across eight countries in Europe and slowly implementing that into uh, tree planting events with, um, like I said, schools, um, citizens, groups of companies, and uh, yeah, very very good reactions. Also landowners very happy that actually, there's actually now being, that's actually being done instead of just talking about it.
0: That's really exciting. Can you tell me about where you're sourcing trees from? Is it easy to find the species that you're looking for? uh, Or is it difficult to, source or at least the scale that you're talking about, the types of native species or the, the, the species that you've come to decide on based on that assessment of thinking maybe a couple of decades forward?
1: We work in each country with dedicated nurseries that have a track record on producing um, a number, a wide variety of trees. And just in the first season, to give you an idea, we've planted almost 100 different species uh, in more than 70 events. So that's a very exciting number. I mean, we always, in every project, we try to promote at least eight different species. But then we started counting them all together, what happened in different countries, and it's close to 100. So that's very exciting in terms of biodiversity and what we try to contribute to the local environment. Um, Having said that, these nurseries um, typically produce a couple of million plants per year. So... We are now at our first year, uh, we did uh, close to 150,000 trees, which is you know, not making a big dent into their operations. So there's widely available. But of course, moving forward to next year, we have to go plant more than uh, a million and a half. So scale that 10 times. Uh, then it can become critical for some nurseries. And then in year three, when we have to go to 15 to 20 million trees per year, then that will become critical. So we are now uh, looking with a number of, European-based suppliers or nurseries to see if they meet the criteria, and they uh, the criteria are um, obviously uh, produced with the less possible, least possible uh, fertilizers in in the cleanest conditions possible, but also that they they are able to produce hardened trees, and with hardened I mean not trees that have been super comfortable in nursery, you know, like always irrigated, you know, uh, to me particularly in very challenging conditions like in Spain and Italy and also in Greece and Portugal, we have to look for nurseries that are uh, sort of hardening off the plants at the, at the last few months before they go into the field, meaning that they give them water, but not, not, not too much. Periods in which they, sh- they shut off the water in order to really make the plant more resilient and more um, sort of, uh, yeah, resilient. That's actually the word I'm looking for, to, to ensure that when they go into the ground that they are, you know, sort of genetically predisposed or, or yeah, um, able to react to that, those challenging conditions. Because you can just imagine any soil life that's active at that moment when you plant a new tree, just goes for that, those new resources that come into, into the area. So the tree really has to not only survive by itself, but also has to defend off a lot of adversary in, in, in his surroundings.
0: What are some of the biggest challenges or roadblocks in your way for meeting the lofty ambitions that you have for the coming years?
1: 500 million trees is a, is a lot of trees, but if you would all add them up um, and you would all plant them next together, let's say, in in, in one single project, it would basically cover a, a big province in the Netherlands or it could cover a province in Italy. So it seems like a lot, and it is a lot, but it's also not like a, it's not that we're going to put trees everywhere in Europe, right? I mean, I, I mean, we're not colonizing all of Europe e- everywhere with trees. So if we look at that scale, um, but still, it is going to be challenging to find the right locations in order to plant those trees. And so that's our biggest challenge, to find the right land that really needs trees and where trees can make a difference in terms of local biodiversity, in terms of erosion, in contention, in terms of... Um, you know, clean air, what have you. So we're looking a lot at green belts, for example, around cities. And that's also easy because of logistics where people can, you know, could even uh, walk or cycle to the, to the planting events, which would be a very nice aspect of it. Uh, we're looking at farmers to offer them trees to, like I said before, that they can uh, implement more easily or with less cost, an uh, agroforestry concept, for example. And then, of course, there's also areas that have been really torn by either forest fires or really severely degraded because of um, climate change. I mean, look at Germany, look at France. We have huge tracts of land, thousands of hectares being uh, attacked by bark beetle and all other, other kinds of plagues. And these were typically planted in the last century. Monocultures, it was always going right. It was always, you know, every year, same cycle, or every, every period. was It was the same cycle of trees, uh, and that's now no longer possible. We have to move to mixed forests with more adventurous trees, if that's the right word. And so the second challenge apart, so if the first challenge is land, second challenge would probably be, uh, what are we going to plant? So to ensure that, that what I said about uh, before, the, the right tree in the right place, that we can actually make that happen.
0: Okay, so from the other side of that, from people listening, how can they contact you and either apply to have their land forested or apply to participate and help plant trees directly?
1: So at lifeterra.eu, we have both uh, we can accommodate both the landowners and the citizens interested. Um, we're not live yet in all European countries, so um, for now we are live in eight countries, and for the coming season uh, that starts in October-November, we hope to be live in ten countries. And uh, so any citizen that is interested or a school, we have also have a schooling program. They can contact us through the website. And on the other hand, landowners, of course, are more than welcome to um, to upload their file, basically with KML information on where they are, um, and then we'll send them a questionnaire to which they can respond on former form of use, uh, what, what do they want, what type of density are they looking at, what type of trees are they looking at, and then we can uh, see if we can uh, work together and make it happen.
0: Super exciting. Now, there's one more aspect of what you do that I'm really interested in because you also help to kind of give assistance to entrepreneurs who are doing ecologically minded projects. I mean, I've talked to Thomas from Massilio before, and I know that you've been closely assisting this project in, in getting established and looking at all the different aspects of the enterprises that can be not only profitable, but also assist in managing the ecology of the farm where they're at. Tell me about how this kind of came about and how you started working with this project.
1: Yes, um, we, we try to, at, at Voltaire, we try to like a, take a, a holistic view on, on new projects. And so, you know, there's typically a lot of enthusiasm from the entrepreneurs and always a lack of money. And this is, I think, is a sort of a, a, a global issue. And uh, so what we try to do every time that there is a potential project, like in this case in, in Tavertet, which is a fantastic living lab if you like, of everything that has to do with regenerative agriculture and with sustainably forest, uh, sustainable forest management. Try to sort of put different actors together, see if we can find funding for that. That was thanks to the Life Micro Restore um, funding. And then see if we can make these entities work together in a synergistic way. So try to not invite free competitors, but really people that are in different parts of the value chain and see how they can come together and, um, you know, make their own businesses grow. So that's just, again coming back to the original idea of creating business models around um, nature restoration projects. And um, yeah, that seems to work very, very nicely. So it's a fantastic outcome for us that this uh, is happening and growing in Tavertet. In
0: Tell me where you're hoping that these different projects are gonna be in the next couple of years. What are you trying to accomplish in the, the short term?
1: So the short, short term in I would say that these projects have to become economically viable by themselves. So, if you know we don't have to lie awake at night to see if we can pay the salaries, that would be you know very important milestone for these companies to, in order to um, these initiatives thrive and and can just you know grow in in, in their respective ways. That would be one. And then uh, for the 500 million trees projects, of course, we we put that incredible goal and uh, that that is basically occupying us (laughs) uh, with a a lot of our a lot of our energy and a lot of our time and that basically means that we hope to energize a lot of actors that are now trying to become involved in climate action but might not have the means or wouldn't know where to go wouldn't know how to do it and we want to help and canalize that energy and money also that's often behind it and see how we can um, you know really get that get that done in the next five years. So that would be a fantastic outcome.
0: Let's end on a note of potential. Tell me what is possible when we start to envision a path forward, both for business, for for communities, and for individuals, of stewardship and collaboration with nature rather than extraction because you've been out to these sites, you've seen them evolve over time after trees are planted as the ecology starts to regain its health and its function. Tell me about the potential of what can happen once these things start to come back in harmony and and in synergy.
1: Yeah, it's a bit of an ideological vision, perhaps. But uh, what I've seen with, uh, for example, agroforestry projects, but also food forests, which is even more dense, if if you like, in terms of. Um, but I think food forest is around cities could be the answer to a lot of our problems. Uh, it basically becomes a fully self-cycling uh, system of uh, nutrients and of nuts and fruits and vegetables and and wood and and so there's a lot of elements that can come out of there that would perfectly serve Europe and the rest of the world um, I mean you can do that everywhere it uh, would give us jobs would give us access to to food to medicine to shade to water to clean water clean air and uh, if we can contribute a little bit to that that would be um, I would be very satisfied
0: it's a marvelous vision uh, before we go can you tell us where the- Listeners can find your different organizations and you already told us how they can get involved with tree planting, but you've got a lot of other projects going on.
1: Yep, so um, let's say the, the the main website will be Volterra.bio, BIO B for biological. And uh, so there, all of our projects are listed on that. And then of course, lifeterra.eu, I already mentioned that. Those would be the best projects. And then, of course you can follow us on Instagram and there um, it's Volterra Ecosystems, if I believe the right address. And there we try to post as many different pictures of the different projects that we do and try to update uh, the audience that we have on our progress. So thanks for following us.
0: Yeah, and this is one of the few projects that is from here in Spain and Europe that I was actually following well before I moved to this area. You guys put out some really inspiring content and I'm super excited, hopefully, of getting involved even more directly in the future, but also continuing to follow you and, and share this around with the community.
1: Thank you so much. We have a lot to do in Spain and uh, Portugal and Southern Europe. And as, as, as we said before, that climate change is very real and it needs a lot of interventions in order to sort of fix this. So your help is more than welcome.
0: Thanks so much, Sven. We'll catch up soon.
1: Thank you. And
0: there you have it now. Thanks once again to Sven Kallen for sharing his knowledge and experience. This episode's original music comes from Anno Domini Beats, and if you'd like to have your own original music featured on the show, or you just want to reach out, you can get in touch directly through info at regenerativeskills.com. Now don't forget that these episodes are just the beginning of the ongoing conversations on these topics happening at Regenerative Skills Discord server. The questions we'll be exploring this week are, what are the biggest environmental risks from climate change where you live? Are you in an area or near an area that's been deforested and that has the potential to be replanted and restored? Now, you can always join the Discord server for free through the links on the website at regenerativeskills.com, where our growing community can help you find answers to your questions, solve challenges, and connect with like-minded people around the world. That's our show for this week. Until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.